Hey, welcome everybody. See you, Scott. Right. Uh, uh, I want to start tonight with Advent candles. Some of you might do Advent candles. It's something that we do in our home just to, to celebrate the Christmas season. Advent meaning that we're looking towards the Advent of the King. And so there are four candles that you light for the four weeks leading up to the day of Christmas. You light the first candle during the, the four weeks out, and then three weeks out you light, you light the first and the second candle. So we're uh, one week from Christmas now, so we'll light three candles. Uh, the three candles represent different things. The first is the candle of hope, or preparation. And it's the candle that represents the, the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, that it's by His blood and by His sacrifice that we are saved, that we're made right with God, and it's also the hope that we have that He's that He'll restore, He'll restore creation, that He'll restore it back uh, to the way that God made it, a way that's without sin and a way that is with God, that will be in the presence of God. The second candle is the candle of um, I always forget them. Let's see, the candle of love. Reminding us that, as the Bible says, that God is love. And it doesn't mean that, that God loves, though He does, but that the way that we define love is by God, that He is the standard for love, that He is the embodiment of love. And in the sacrifice of His Son, that's the perfect demonstration or the perfect representation of love. Because, you know, any guy, or maybe not any guy, but most guys would die for somebody that they love but uh, it really takes a true self-sacrifice, a, a, a sacrificial love to die for your enemy. And of course, that's what Jesus did, that when he died, we were his enemies and he died for us. So that's the perfect representation of love. Uh, the third candle, sometimes called the, the shepherd's candle, uh, because when the angel appeared to announce the birth of Jesus Christ, he first appeared, as Pastor Ben's been teaching, he first appeared to the shepherds. It's also called the joy candle because, as it says in Luke 10, when the angels came to the, uh, to the shepherds, the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. So this is called the candle of joy. The fourth candle is the candle of peace. I won't light it tonight because we're not in that fourth week. But it's the candle of peace. Uh, Jesus brings peace between us and God. That He reconciles man to God. As He forgives us, as He makes us a new creation, He also allows us to reconcile man to man, or man to woman, or woman person to person. And so He brings peace between us and God, and then also between people. Um, there is also a peace in the Bible that he talks about in Revelation and Romans that he will bring a shalom or a peace to the world, to the creation, and that all the creation is groaning now in expectation, awaiting that peace to come. Uh, the fifth candle, the one in the middle, is the Christ candle. And the Christ candle represents, of course, Jesus Christ. That The four weeks of Advent are meant to, to build up to the birth of Jesus Christ. And that's, that's what we celebrate, right? That, that we celebrate the coming of a king, the Advent of a king. So you're supposed to burn that one on Christmas Day. We usually burn it for a few days afterwards, right, Kaiser? Just because we like to burn the candle. Traditions are great, I think. Traditions can be a stumbling block, I think, that, uh, that sometimes we can go into traditions and they become just something that we do. But, you know, we're people, and people really like things to grab onto and to remind us about the work that God has done. 
And so if they're seen not as something that makes me right with God, but that reminds me about who God is and the work that He's done in Jesus Christ, then I think they can be useful. All right? So I'll leave those burning while we're here. Uh, tonight, we're going to be in Psalm 20. Let me pray before we get started. Um, Dear Lord, I I thank you for these people. I thank you that you have brought them here, that they are people that that long to know your word. Lord, may we may we all be like them that that long to to know and to follow you and to just digest your word. Lord, I pray that you'll teach us here this evening that uh, that you'll teach us about who you are and the work that you have done and that you'll teach us about how we are to call on you uh, with what expectation we are to call you call on you in a day of trouble. Lord, we love you. We, uh, we come before you as sons and daughters of the God Most High and only by the blood of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So, um, this is a dollhouse, right? You might have a dollhouse when they were a kid? Yes. Manny, you did? Seriously? <laughs> uh, a dollhouse is nice. Our houses in general are good because they give us structure. I, I, I can tell you in my house where... I'm going to find a couch, because you usually find the couch in the living room, or you might find one in the bedroom. I can tell you where to find pots and pans, because pots and pans are going to be where in your house? In the kitchen. Not in the bathroom. (laughs) Uh, Or where you might find pillows. In the bedroom, or you might find them in the living room, or... Bathroom or I don't know, pillows are sort of a funny thing. You can find them almost anywhere. But we like structure because it really helps us to to know what the purpose of a thing is. And so the purpose of a house, well, is for us to live in, right? It's it's a home. It's a place for us just to eat, to sleep, to gather. It's a place for us to just be. And so a house has a structure. And I think in a similar way, the Bible has structures to it. And it's important for us to understand those structures because it'll help us to understand the Bible. And I think that we're all called to understand the Bible. People have been studying the Bible for thousands of years. And just normal people, right? You don't have to be a student of the Bible. or You have to be a student of the Bible, but you don't have to be a Greek scholar, a Hebrew scholar, a historian to understand what the Bible is. Because people have been reading the Bible for thousands of years, and they've understood it. And, you know, frankly, I don't think that our God is a God of confusion, that he doesn't want us to come to his word and be confused. He doesn't expect us to be confused. I think understanding the structures of the Bible really help you a long way as you go about studying the Bible. And tonight we're going to be looking at Psalm 20. And you can turn there if you want, Psalm number 20. But before we read that, I want to tell you about a structure that people use in poetry. Because the Psalms, those are poems or they're songs, right? Songs are just poems that are set to music. And many Psalms, actually many parts of the Bible, the Old Testament in particular, use this type of structure called the chiastic structure. Uh, You might also hear it called a chiasm, but a chiastic structure is a structure like this where you have the ABBA format. Uh, a is a particular idea, and here in this diagram, the, uh, the A up on the left is the first idea, and then there's a second idea, A, that's similar. That's why there's a line drawn between them. And if you're reading a chiastic structure, it would go A, B, B, A. And so here's a little chiastic structure here on the right. She has all my love, my heart belongs to her. She has and belongs to her are both similar ideas, right? Just similar ways of saying the same thing, that she possesses something. And all my love and my heart are another way to say a similar idea, that she has all my love, she has all my heart, that the heart represents the love. That's a chiastic structure. We use it in poems a lot, and in the Hebrew Bible especially, they use it a lot to order 
how the author wrote the Bible, or wrote that section. Uh, often we'll write that structure uh, down here on the bottom right as A, B, B, A. And notice that the B, A on the bottom, they have a prime next to them, or an apostrophe. That's just to say, hey, this is really a repeat of that previous B. Um, this is pretty common. Even in big narratives, you'll see this chiastic structure. This is, uh, I might not be able to see that in the back. Jesse, can you see that okay? Yeah, okay. All right, Jesse can see it. Uh, this is the chiastic structure of the Genesis flood narrative. So all about Noah and his life and the ark and the flood that God brought onto the earth. And if you look at the ideas that are presented, so this isn't poetry, right? This is just a narrative, but it still holds with those ideas. So, uh, for example, let's see. Um, oh, what was a good one? Uh, F is good. So in F, F, the idea F is all about the all living creatures in chapter 6, verses 17 through 20. And then down here, we have another repeat of that, which we'll call F prime. So if you go through those chapters in Genesis, you'll begin to see these ideas and they repeat one another. And they do that in order to show you, show you that, um, that there's a central idea. And the central idea is here that God remembers Noah. And so you can think of this not as a linear story, though it is a linear story, but it's also built in such a way so that it comes up to a central idea. The idea that, that Noah was righteous and God remembered Noah and he saved Noah and his family. So there's chiastic structures all throughout the Bible. And we're going to see, as you probably guess, that Psalm 20 is, has a chiastic structure. It's a poem that has these repeating ideas. Uh, before we get to that, I just want to say that I think that as you're reading through the Bible, that it's really useful just to look at the, the thing that you're reading, say if you're reading an epistle, for example, to look at the big ideas that are in that epistle and try to map them out all on your own. Try to figure out what are the big ideas that, say, Paul is trying to write here, is trying to, to say to me in this letter, and, uh, and then begin to fill it in. So, for example, here's a, an outline for Ephesians. I didn't actually write this. I pulled this from a commentary or something, but... Um, in Pauline epistles, that is, you know, letters that are written by Paul, I think it's kind of cool that he has an adjective made out of his name, right? I want to make a, an adjective out of my name. Yeah, I don't, I don't think that's the thing. Like, I think you have to be famous like Paul. Uh, <laughs> okay, yeah, but you have to use it as an adjective to describe, I guess, my, my clothes, yeah. Right, right, right. Anyway, so on those, those letters that Paul writes, they often have a similar structure. Uh, we did Ephesians at, at Living Word not long ago, a year or so ago. Pastor Ben went through the book of Ephesians. But often in those epistles, you, Paul will, will deal with doctrine or theology, and he'll say, what are your implications of your faith? And then he'll transition into practical applications of that. And you see that in Ephesians. And then you can go in and sort of fill in some of the other big ideas. So if you're reading through a book of the Bible every day, that's a great first place to start, is just write out an outline for that book. You don't need to look it up. Just come up with it on your own. You can do that. I, we're all smart people here. You can, you can look for the big ideas that are in those books, and, uh, and see how they're structured in that way. Finding the structure of a book is really useful to help you to understand the purpose of that book. And one more thing before we move into Psalm 20, and that's that Psalm 20 is something called a royal psalm. A royal psalm uh, is really just a term that man made up, scholar, I don't know, 100 years ago or so. He, he classified about a dozen of the psalms in the book of Psalms as royal psalms. It really just means that they talk about a king. Usually it's talking about King David. Actually, I think all of them are talking about King David. Uh, 
not always about the same idea. Like we'll see on this one, it's about a king that's going to war, but sometimes they're about kings that are being cor like coronated, the coronation of kings. Uh, any context that has to do with a king. Usually with royal psalms, I think probably always, that there's often a, another layer to it. That it's talking about the events that are occurring in that time. And then we'll see with Psalm 20 that it's also talking about uh, the king to come. Uh, last time I was here, we talked about how there's this overarching idea about the anticipation of the coming king, the Messiah that's to come. And we'll see that in, in Isaiah 20, in, excuse me, in Psalm 20. And then also you see it in, uh, I think, most of the royal psalms, that there's always this subtext of the Messiah to come, the king that's going to come. Let's pray before we start uh, looking at Psalm 20. Dear Lord, I, I thank you for... Um, Thank you for your gift to us, that, that you have given us your Son in Jesus Christ. And I pray that as we go into Psalm 20, that you will speak to us, that you'll uh, reveal to us the message that you have for us. Lord, we know that, that your word is inspired by the Holy Spirit, written by men and inspired by the Holy Spirit. And it is a revelation of you to us. And so I pray that, that you will speak to us as we read it. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Psalm 20. So you can move there in your Bible. It's not a very long psalm. I'm going to read the whole thing, but why don't we stand while I read uh, just to acknowledge that this is God's Word. May the Lord answer you on a day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May He send you help from the sanctuary and support you from Zion. May he remember all your meal offerings and accept your burnt offering. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill your whole plan. We will sing for joy over your victory. And in the name of our God, we will set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your desires. Now, I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. Some praise their chariots and some their horses, but we will praise the name of the Lord our God. They have bowed down and fallen, but we have risen and stood upright. Save, Lord. May the King answer us on the day we call. Amen. We're going to have a seat. Thank you. So, uh, what type of psalm is this? Is Psalm 20? This particular class of psalm is a royal psalm. It's a Davidic psalm too. I mean, it's written by David, right? Um, but it's a royal psalm. And this talks about a king, King David, who is about to go to war. But before he goes to war, he stops in the sanctuary and the congregation prays for him. And this is the prayer that they pray over David. Uh, it's an intercessory prayer, meaning that they're intercessing or they're asking for God's protection over David. And the interesting thing about this prayer is we'll see as we move along that it, it expects, it expects an answer and expects, in fact, a victory in that answer. And so we'll see that. But first, I want to look at the structure of this because I think that it'll, it'll reveal something to us about the primary message. So remember, a chiastic structure, right, in a poem, an A, B, C, C, B, A type format. We see that in Psalm 20. Uh, these are the first and last verses. May the Lord answer you on a day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. And save, Lord, may the king answer us on the day we call. 
You could tell that those are similar ideas because they're both asking for a prayer in need. You also see some words that are similar are the same words that are repeated, like may and day and answer. So you see this repetition of words, but it's also representing a prayer in need, that both of these verses are a prayer in need. Uh, and so that might clue us in that there's going to be this sort of chiastic structure, a repeating of ideas as we move through Psalm 20. And in fact, it is. I've just marked them here already that uh, in the first and last verses, we see a day of need, that David finds himself in a day of need because he's going to war, right? And so he has a need as he moves into war. Uh, In verses 2 through 4 and then 6 through 8, we see a prayer for God's help and then a repeat of that, but expressing confidence in God's help. And then finally, in part C, it's rejoicing in anticipation that the people, as they pray for King David, as he goes to war, that they're expecting an answer and they're expecting it to be positive. They're expecting God to move as they ask for this victory over their enemy. So again, as you read Psalm 20, you don't want to read it linearly, or at least as a linear thought, as a straight line through that psalm. Instead, you want to think of it as a mountain, that you're coming up from two sides up to the central idea, which is in verse 5, the rejoicing and anticipation. So we're going to look at those three ideas, a day of need, prayer for God's help, or confidence in God's help, and then rejoicing in anticipation. And how did uh, King David, or how did the kings of the Old Testament, how did they express that? And then also, how do we express that in our lives? Sound like a plan? All right, okay. So let's look at the first part, which is a day of need. May the Lord answer you on a day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. And save, Lord, may the King answer us on the day we call. So this is an introduction to this prayer, and it's requesting that the Lord have his name on the king to protect him. That's the the name of the God of Jacob, or the name of the God of Israel, right? Jacob and Israel are the same, uh, or Jacob is the father, or father, the, the 12 tribes of Israel. A few points I want to note here as we move and sort of think about this day of trouble that David and, uh, and the nation of Israel were encountering is that we'll all have a day of trouble, right? Is that true? Everybody has a day of trouble? Every, if you haven't yet, uh, I don't believe you, first of all, if you haven't yet, but if you haven't yet, just wait. It'll come, that a day of trouble will come. Uh, second is that mostly when we have that day of trouble, we're powerless, I, was at, I think it was at men's group. Somebody was saying that, that uh, it was a miracle that they had gotten there just because no car swerved across the yellow line, right? That mostly, it seems like most of the time that when we encounter these days of trouble, that it's almost as if we're, we're power, so powerless against it. Now, of course, that's not always true. I can be a good driver, right? Or I can take precautions for this or that. But it seems that most days of trouble that we're powerless against. And then the third thing is that that we can choose on whom we call. And in this, it says that we will call on the name of the God of Jacob. And in fact, that's an idea that comes up over and over again in Psalm 20. So we all have a day of trouble. Yes, mostly we're powerless in those days of trouble. And uh, that we call on the king. And we expect that the king will answer. I want to look in Second Chronicles 
and look at a, a passage where a king goes to battle and how he responds in that day of trouble. But before we do that, I just want to show you a brief timeline of the Old Testament. This is on the back of your thing, your little handout here. Uh, there's an outline, a timeline for the Old Testament. Because, you know, the Old Testament can be kind of hard to read sometimes. Is that just me? Difficult to read the Old Testament. The names are hard to pronounce. You don't really know who the people are. It's difficult to understand all the things that have happened. So it's an ancient text. It can be difficult to read sometimes. But I think if you have a, a rough idea of all the big events that have occurred in the Old Testament, it can really help you to place those events in the right context. So this is just a brief timeline. Uh, Genesis 1 through 11, that's the creation of the universe. Uh, the flood and the Tower of Babel. That shows how God created man, how man was, um, was sinful up through Noah. And God says everybody's wicked and he wipes the slate clean, but he remembers Noah and he allows Noah to live. And then um, in the Tower of Babel, he just disperses them all and they, they give them all different languages and they move all out to different parts of the world. In Genesis 12, that's when God calls Abraham. And we really see that God is beginning to work in a, in a new way, perhaps. That he, he's going to be a blessing to all of the nations through Abraham. And he gives them that covenant or that promise. Abraham goes and he, he moves to this new land. Eventually, uh, Israel or Jacob comes along. And uh, Jacob and his family will move to Egypt. They'll be slaves there for, gosh, hundreds of years, 400 years or so. And then as we move here to the Exodus, remember last time we said that Exodus was one of the watershed moments in the history of the Old Testament. You remember what the other one was? The Exodus. And what was the other one? You said it. What did you say? Flood? No, not the flood. Syria? No, the exile. So like in the history of the Jewish people, the Exodus and the exile are two very important events. We'll get to that in just a second. So um, anyway, the Exodus is where God delivers the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, part the, the waters of the Red Sea. Uh, the Israelites move into the land that was promised to Abraham, and it's called the conquest, where they're going out and they're, they're, they're uh, taking over these lands. And during that time, God raises up the judges. These were people that imparted the word of God to people. They were like prophets, but they also were arbiters of justice. That They, they said, this is what's right and wrong. Uh, but the people didn't like having judges because they looked around and they saw that there were all these kings around, that all the other nations had kings. And they said, we want a king too, just like all these other nations. And um, even though the prophets then said, no, you don't want a king, they didn't, they didn't relent. And so they gave them a king. And King Saul, who turned out to be a very bad king, was their first king. King David, who was a very good king, became their second king. Uh, king David, we'll talk about a covenant that God made with King David that his uh, his throne would last forever. And we'll see how that comes into play soon. Uh, Solomon was his son. Solomon built the temple. So for many years, the Ark of the Covenant, which is where, they, where God resided, had been in a tent, had been traveling around, and Solomon finally built the temple. Um, after Solomon, the kingdom divides into two kingdoms, the northern and the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom included Judah, and then the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin is really small, so we usually just call the whole southern kingdom Judah. 
And then the, the northern kingdom was the other ten tribes. Now those tribes have mostly been lost. Uh, when I say the tribes, those were the sons of Israel or the sons of Jacob. And so those ten tribes were in the north. They were mostly lost because the Assyrians came in and they conquered the northern kingdoms. And the Assyrians had a funny way of conquering lands is where they would come in and conquer the land and then they would send in all these other peoples to intermarry with those. And it basically erased out whatever people group lived there. The Samaritans, they, they were from the northern kingdom, but they were seen as, uh, I don't know, they, they were seen as, as not good or, I don't know, defiled yeah because they had intermarried with all these other people groups um so uh, judah is conquered during the babylonian exile uh, you know like the book of daniel book of esther those all occurred during the exile but then they come back from the exile god delivers them from the exile uh, the temple is rebuilt and then nehemiah near the end of the old testament builds the wall around the city of jerusalem so that's a good, you know, that's a rough and a quick overview of the Old Testament. But it, it helps you to sort of hang your hat on things that you read in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is really important for us to understand the New Testament. Because, uh, you know, the, the New Testament is largely a response to what's happened in the Old Testament. Um, we're going to look right about here, right after the kingdom's divided in Second Chronicles, uh, I think it's 13. Yeah, Second Chronicles 14. So let's move to Second Chronicles 14. This is a pretty cool story. Second um, Chronicles 14. Chronicles deals mostly with the southern kings, the, the Judah kings. And Asa, who was a couple of kings down from David, or from Solomon, um, was a good king. You know, as you're reading through Chronicles, you'll be pretty clear on who's a good king or a bad king. Because they'll say such and such a king uh, you know, was a good king or such and such a king followed in the ways of his dad. He worshipped idols. He was a very bad king. And so King Asa was a good king. And this talks about how he went into battle. It says Asa had an army of 300,000 men from Judah bearing large shields and spears and 280,000 men from Benjamin. That's the little bitty tribe of Benjamin bearing small shields, I guess because it's a smaller tribe. I don't know. Uh, and, and drawing the bow. All these were mighty men of valor. So they had 580,000 troops that were going to battle. Uh, then Zerah the Cushite came against them with an army of a million men. Now the Cushites were from Sudan, modern day Sudan, so sort of central Africa. And uh, they were known to be fierce warriors, frankly. They, they were very fierce. They were very good with the bow. Uh, there were times when they had conquered Egypt and they ruled over Egypt. They, they were a, a prominent force within the biblical times. And at times they were enemies to the Israelites, and at times they were allies with the Israelites. Anyway, the Cushites um, advanced as far as Marisha, the sort of south of Jerusalem. So Asa marched out against him and lined up in battle formation in the valley of Zephathah near Marisha. Is this a day of trouble when you have 500,000 men go into battle, and you come up against a million soldiers? Yeah, can you imagine sitting there, King Asa, and you look out over this sea of fierce soldiers, very well-equipped soldiers, having twice as many people as you? I think that's certainly a day of trouble that King Asa had encountered because the army's well-prepared. It seems insurmountable. Uh, but we'll see that King Asa in this battle will call on the name of the Lord. 
Now, what is a day of trouble that, that you might encounter? Have you ever had an instance where you have 500,000 troops up to a million troops, up against a million troops? And you think of a day of trouble that you might have had. Now, I think our days of trouble can be different, right? They can be an issue with finances, that sometimes it feels like we're drowning in finances, that we're in debt, or that we just don't have enough. That sometimes our trouble has to do with relationships, right? I think often relationships bring on a day of trouble where either through sin on your part or sin on other people's parts that uh, relationships are broken and in need of restoration. Uh, Sometimes our day of trouble might have to do with death or illness. A lot of people in our community are dealing with that, with the COVID crisis, that, that they're dealing with death or illness in their families. So days of trouble can be different for everybody. I think that everybody has indeed faced a day of trouble. Let's see what, um, well, we'll come back to that actually. Let's look, go back to Psalm 20. And so we're going to look at the second part. So remember Psalm 20, the first is the prayer for, uh, prayer for your, or your day of need. And here in the second parts, the B sections of Psalm 20, we see a prayer for God's help and a confidence in God's help. May he send you help from the sanctuary and support you from Zion. May he remember all your meal offerings and accept your burnt offering. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill your whole plan. And then skipping over down to the next section. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. Some praise their chariots and some their horses, but we will praise the name of the Lord our God. They have bowed down and fallen, but we have risen and stood upright. So I want you to see a few points that come as we look between these two sections where they're similar but different. Uh, First of all, when help comes from the Lord, that uh, he saves his anointed. So here in verse 2, he says, May he send you help from the sanctuary. That means from the Lord, like the, the sanctuary is where, the, the, where God dwelt and support you from Zion. And then down in verse 6, Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. So we see uh, that he is sending help from God and that he is saving from, uh, he's saving his anointed. Also, we make offerings to God. In verse 3, may you remember all your meal offerings and accept your burnt offering. And then down in verse 7, it says, Some praise their chariots and some their horses, but we will praise the name of the Lord our God. So we make offerings of God, but these are not our chariots and horses. Right? That these are not the things that we trust in. That When we make these offerings to God, that we're trusting in the name of God. That we're trusting in the work of God. And then he grants our heart's desire. Um, it's not the same as those who praise their chariots when he grants their heart's desire that it's uh, our heart then is for the Lord. And so we see that here. May he grant your heart's desire and fulfill your whole plan. But they have bowed down and fallen. Those are the people that are trusting in their chariots and their horses. Uh, but we have risen and stood upright. Let's look in Chronicles 14 again. So we'll go to Chronicles 14 and see how Asa responds. Remember Asa, he had a half million people to a million people. And then what's the difference in the response that he has or what's the prayer that he cries out? In verse 11 in 2 Chronicles 14, Asa cried out to the Lord his God, O Lord, there is no one besides you to help the powerless against the mighty. 
Help us, O Lord our God, for we rely on you, and in your name we have come against this multitude. O Lord, you are our God. Do not let a mere mortal prevail against you. This is the call of Psalm 20, right? That Asa is calling not into that, hey, look at all these half million great warriors, these men of valor that I have. But instead, Asa is calling on the name of God. That he says, you help the powerless against the mighty. That's where Asa falls. He feels powerless against the mighty. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rely on you. That they're relying not on their horses and chariots, but they're relying on the name of the Lord their God. So this is the prayer of Psalm 20. In fact, you know, Asa had probably read that Psalm 20. I'm sure that he had the hymn books that David had written, and he probably prayed this on a regular basis as they would move out into, into battle. So I think that you can probably bet that, that Asa had actually read or had that prayer prayed over him and his soldiers before they went out. And this is the call that King Asa has as he moves out into battle. I want to look at Galatians 5, because I think that, um, that this idea of trusting in our horses and our chariots and our strength that we have within ourselves, that I think it can be similar to what we see in Galatians 5. Galatians 5 talks about uh, walking in the flesh and walking in the Spirit. Let's see, it's uh, Galatians 5, 16 through 24. You can move, turn there if you like. Um, so, in Psalm 20, they talk about trusting in your chariots and your horses or trusting in God. In Galatians 5, he talks about walking by the Spirit. So when Jesus ascended into heaven, he said, I go so that I can send your Spirit, so that when we confess our faith in Jesus Christ, that we are reconciled with God, but then we also receive uh, the Holy Spirit of God. And the Holy Spirit of God imparts the gifts of God to us. Let's read this. So, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, Disputes, dissensions, factions, envy, and drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit, the person that's living by the Spirit, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. As we go about our life, as we go into these days of trouble, it's a battle for us because we are battling between living by the Spirit, that we have the Holy Spirit within us, who is changing us, sanctifying us, making us more like Jesus Christ. And yet we have this battle with the flesh, right? that we have to put off the flesh and, and fight against the flesh. So I think that... Um, right, we're going to do this. So... Uh, when we encounter difficult times, hmm, you might want to move. No, you'll be okay. You're fine. Uh, so when we encounter difficult times, the balloon here is like, like, um, like being filled with the flesh, that you're being led by the flesh and not by the Spirit. And so when you encounter difficult times, you know, what happens? 
So our difficult time is going to be like this candle. What's going to happen if I put the candle to the balloon? It's going to pop, right? Because uh, there's nothing, nothing there that's actually... Uh, that's producing the fruits of the Spirit. That is really just sort of your own flesh that produces that big old long line of bad stuff that you saw. So let's, I'm going to pop it. Ooh. Oh, goodness. <laughs> I don't know. But this balloon, on the other hand, this balloon is like a person that's filled with the Spirit, right? And a person that's filled with the Spirit, when they encounter a day of trouble, when they trust in the Spirit, then the Spirit is indwelling them. And so when they encounter a difficult time, what's going to happen to the balloon? <laughs> well, that wasn't supposed to happen. I held it too long. It was too many hard days. Yeah, too many hard days. <laughs> So, um, walking in the flesh or being led by the Spirit. That we're called to be led by the Spirit. Though as followers of Jesus Christ, that we have the Spirit of God. And we are called to be led by the Spirit as we follow Him. Let's look at the last section of this, section C. This was the middle verse in verse 5 of Psalm 20. It's a really cool verse because they don't know how God's going to respond. But they have this anticipation that God is going to bring them victory. He says, we will sing for joy over your victory. And in the name of our God, we will set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your desires. They come into this with a great anticipation of what God's going to do. This prayer already has an end in their mind. That that end is going to be a victory for them in this battle. Now, returning back to King Asa, I remember... Half million against a million fierce warriors, uh, the Cushites. So, so the Lord struck down the Cushites before Asa and Judah, and the Cushites fled. Then Asa and his army pursued them as far as Gerar. The Cushites fell and could not recover, for they were crushed before the Lord and his army. I think there's a couple of interesting things here that, you know, it might be that, that God did strike down the Cushites supernaturally. It's sort of hard to tell. And he's certainly done that in other battles where he just, he really just smote the, the soldiers that, that they were coming up against. I think that maybe that, uh, that Asa had gone to, to battle against these Cushites and that it was sort of like, um, like Jesus feeding the 5,000 with the bread that they always had enough that they always had enough to bring victory against these Cushites. We don't really know if it was one way or the other. It's sort of hard to tell from the text. But they are very clear that the Lord is the one that was at work. They are very clear that the Lord is the one that struck down the Cushites. No matter how it happened, that, that is, that's the clear takeaway from this passage. And so Asa and his army, they pursued them and, and sort of ran them out of Israel completely. Um, In our own day of trouble, we're to, to go before the Lord and we're to rejoice, right? That that's what it said in that verse 5, that, that we're to rejoice. We're to look for an, the anticipation of victory. And so that's kind of hard, I think, that when you're facing a day of trouble, one, to anticipate a victory over that day of trouble, whatever that is that you thought of earlier, the day of trouble that you've had, uh, but then also to find great joy or rejoicing 
in that day of trouble. I mean, the, the candle of joy, right? That's, that's the candle that we lit earlier, that, that we have a great joy because of who Jesus Christ is. That Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. And that Jesus Christ has come and He's died for us. That He acts as a, as a propitiation, as a, as a settlement for the wrath of God that was to be upon us. And that He pays that debt and He makes us right with God and He makes us right with men. And so that's a great joy, that as we always go into our days of trouble remembering that, that Jesus is who He says He is. We know that because of the resurrection, that He demonstrated who He was and He said who He was. And if He is who He says He is, then He's done what He said He'd done. So as we go about our days of trouble, remember that, that, that we are called to rejoice, even when the times are dark and difficult. Uh, you know, I think that Psalm 20 can be read as a as an end the today kind of passage that you look at and you say, "Oh, this is looking at King David as he goes to battle." But it can also be an end the tomorrow kind of passage that we're looking not at the here and now, either the time of King David or the time. Uh, of us, like time today, that we have these days of trouble and we go to the Lord with a prayer of need and we look to Him with expectation and anticipation, but in fact, for the days to come. Remember those royal psalms? We said that they often have a double meaning, uh, a double entendre, if you want. That's the technical term for that. You might ever double entendre. It's just a fun word to say. Isn't it a fun word? <laughs> uh, that it has a double meaning often. That, that double meaning is in the here and now, but then also that it's in the days to come, in, in the end of time, in the coming Messiah, that the, the, the psalmist, King David, was looking for the Messiah to come. And that promise comes about in 2 Samuel 7. It's all throughout the Old Testament. In fact, that idea that there is a coming Messiah, a king to come, is an idea that is ever-present throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament. And so in fact, you could say that that's, that's the entire story of the Bible, from the very beginning to the very end, that there is a king that will come and set his kingdom right. This is to David. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. Uh, this seems to be maybe talking about Solomon a little bit, but then we get this last line. Solomon was David's son. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And there are other passages that talk about this eternal kingdom, that, that God will establish this kingdom forever. And so we look towards this king to come, this Messiah, this, this Savior that will come, that was prophesied all throughout the Old Testament. This is called the Davidic covenant, the covenant that was made with David. Uh, we can see some threads in Psalm 20 that make us think that this is about the Davidic king, that is about King David, but also about the Messianic king, the Messiah to come. Who is Jesus Christ? That Who is uh, the one who claimed to be the Messiah and demonstrated that in the resurrection? Uh, just a few things. First of all, it says that the Lord saves his anointed. That the anointed is often a word that's used to refer to the Messiah. And so that type of language makes us think that uh, it's about the Messianic king. Or the saving strength of his right hand, right? That, that Jesus, when he went up, he sat down at the right hand of God the Father. And so that, that type of language also. But also, I think probably the, the strongest connection that we have this to this Messianic language is this very last verse where it says, May the king answer us on the day we call. Are they calling on King David? 
Are they praying to King David? Uh, nobody would ever say, no good Jew would ever say, I'm going to call on, on King David. Instead, they, they pray to the king of the universe. So I think that that's, that's also a good thread that, that ties this in with a, a messianic psalm. That it is talking about King David and, and uh, the, the prayer for need and the prayers that they give, but it's also talking about the, the kingdom to come. Um, in 1 Corinthians 15, he talks about Christ being raised from the dead. So Paul wrote this, and he says, But the fact is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man death came, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, after that those who are Christ's at his coming. Now we have this idea about what it's like in the afterlife. Right? What happens when we die? And it's really a Greek idea that says that, well, our souls leave the earth and we just sort of are up somewhere up in heaven. But really that Christians believe in the bodily resurrection. In fact, you know, that, that's taught all throughout the Bible. Pastor, uh, Pastor Ben taught about the bodily resurrection. And Paul is teaching about that here, the bodily resurrection, that at the end of time that we will actually be resurrected, uh, that Christ is the first fruits, but then those who are Christ, that is us, that we belong to him at his coming. And so that bodily resurrection is a great hope that we have because that coming Messiah, that coming King will set things right. I want to show this video. This is a, a show, Rust Valley something. It's just the trailer for it. But it's about a guy that restores old cars. I grew up in a family of mechanics. And so I uh, love old cars. But in this, he takes these rusty old cars and he makes them anew. And I think it's a beautiful image of what the bodily resurrection will be like, that, that he'll take us as rusty old cars and make us anew. Let's watch it. It's just a couple minutes. My name is Mike Hall. Over the last 40 years, against better judgment, I managed to amass over 400 classic cars. These cars are my legacy. But I'm running out of time to restore them all. So I opened up a restoration shop with my son Connor and my best friend Avery. To try and turn my passion into profit. Restoring cars that the average person can afford. But it's tough making a buck. So I'm going to have to get the whole car craze down behind me to help get the job done. But that's how things roll here in Rust So obviously that guy's not God, right? Huh? I think so, yeah. Um, but the idea still stands that, that God is the one who restores. And that at the end of time that he will restore us. And that, that's our, our great hope. That he'll take us and he'll restore us to these resurrected bodies. I don't know exactly what that's going to look like. But I know that it's going to be a great and wonderful thing. That, that all the pain and the injustice and the death and the sin that we encounter in this place will be gone. All the days of trouble will be gone. In Revelation 21, uh, he says this, John, the Apostle John, says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. 
And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, and there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Uh, a few weeks ago, we sang this song. Uh, how's it go? It's like, Did you hear the mountains tremble? You all hear when we sing that song in church? It's a beautiful song. And I, I felt like that during that song that the Spirit of God moved through the people of living word. The reason is that psalm looks to this day. That it looks to the day when the mountains tremble and when dancers dance upon injustice, when, uh, when God makes all things new. I'm going to play a clip from it and then we'll close in prayer. But uh, I think that psalm or that song talks about the reason that we are to rejoice, even when it's not clear that victory is coming, even when we don't even see victory coming, because we know that in the end that God wins and that God restores and that God redeems us and makes us anew. And thanks be to God, thanks be to Jesus Christ, that, that by the work that He's done, that He has made us anew in that way. So I'm going to play, it's, just, it's not the whole song, it's just a couple minutes. I just want you to meditate on it. Sing along with it if you want, but we'll just meditate on it, okay? close us in prayer Um, you know the gift of Jesus Christ is is a free gift that is something that he calls us to come and he calls us to to confess to him and to accept him as our savior and so if if you're here and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your savior talk to me talk to pastor pastor Matt afterwards and uh, we'll tell you about what that means about that great gift that you have in salvation well, let's pray right now. Dear Lord, I thank you for these people. I pray that you will protect them in their days of trouble. Help them to, to not grow weary. 
or to grow frustrated or upset, but to always remember that you hold the victory, that you restore and that you redeem, and that ultimately you are victorious. Lord, let us anticipate always the victory over sin, the victory in our days of trouble. Lord, we we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. I thank you for the people of God that that they draw together to worship you and to, to learn about you and to become more like you. Lord, I love you. We love you. And we cry out these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. All right, y'all. Y'all have a good night, okay?